This evening, as you can see on the screen there, we are not in the book of Revelation. This week, with all the things going on with the, the conference, I was working midweek, starting to prepare for the evening service, and pulled up uh, my study in Revelation and started working on it for a little while and realized the chapters we are going to be in next require much more time than I had left in the, the week that was in front of me. So I readily admit I went to the files and pulled out a, a sermon that's You've heard before if you were here roughly 10 years ago. If you weren't here 10 years ago, uh, you haven't heard it. And if you were here 10 years ago and you remember it, my hat's off to you because I can't even remember it that far back, so I'd be surprised if you can. It was a great conference. The, the, one of the reasons I ended up so busy this week is I had not really intended to sit in a whole lot of the, the conference. The conference was uh, on revitalization, and in my mind, revitalization means you're a church of 15 people and you're trying to build up again. Well, the, the material that was being covered is applicable to a church our size or any size. There was a lot of good stuff, so I ended up sitting in many more of the, the sessions than I had intended during the week, and it was a, a profitable week, but did cut down on the time to prepare. So next week, Lord willing, we'll be back in Revelation. Tonight, we're in the book of John. I'm sure that most of you have been engaged in sports at some level in, in your lives. Uh, maybe you played sports as a kid. I even attempted to play basketball when I was an elementary child until I realized, one, that I was extremely disadvantaged because I was a small, scrawny kid, and two, I, I had no natural talent. Until those realizations came on, uh, on me, I, I tried to play basketball. But I was involved that way. I, I was involved with sports as my kids played sports when they were in school. And some of you maybe are involved with grandkids watching their sports. I'm not there yet, but someday I probably will be, Lord willing. And you may even be playing sports yourself still. Uh, some of you may be engaged at times, maybe... You're not playing, but you watch on TV on a regular basis. What, whatever your level of, of sport engagement is at the present, I'm sure there is some connection between sports and your life. It's almost impossible to live in this country and not have some kind of connection between sports and, and our lives. For that reason, I'm sure you're all familiar with the, the picture on the screen, the image there, the, the image of a huddle. We understand that, that team members of many sports, when pretty much every team sport, they, they have some version of a huddle as they, they gather together to ensure that they're all on the same page of what is about to happen. Probably the, the place we see the huddle most often is on football because practically every play there's a huddle between each play. But they want to make sure that all the team members know what play is about to run. The, the coach calls in the play or the quarterback checks his chart and determines here's the play we'll run. And then in the huddle, he communicates that to the rest of the, the, the team members. And then they're ready to play. The, the huddle is the, the last chance that, that the team has to listen to the coach, listen to the team captain, the quarterback, whoever they need to hear from so that they're all in alignment before the action begins. This evening, I want to keep this idea of a huddle firmly in our minds as we look at this passage in John's Gospel. The, the passage we're looking at is composed of five verses here in John chapter 20. The, these verses come after Mary Magdalene has 
gone to the tomb and discovered it was empty. And then Mary Magdalene has told Peter and John about it. And these verses come after Peter and John have run out to the, the tomb and saw for themselves that it was empty, with the exception of the, the grave cloths and the, the or the grave clothes and the face cloth that was lying inside the tomb. These verses come after Mary Magdalene had lingered behind in the garden and actually encountered the, the Lord. They're, they're, after all of these events have transpired, but they're not before that most amazing day of our Lord's resurrection has come to its completion. As we turn to our passage tonight, I want us to think about a huddle. Yet, I don't want us to think about the huddle as frequently that image is used in a church context. Uh, maybe you've heard of the holy huddle. That you, the holy huddle sometimes is a, a term used to invoke an image that comes from the way believers tend to isolate themselves from the unsaved world around them in, in a type of a huddle. We, we huddle together, but we never break out of our huddle. We, we shuffle from church activity to church activity completely isolating ourselves from unbelievers by other believers. This isolating tendency is invoke this image of a huddle, but it's not a huddle that's designed to prepare for the next play. The holy huddle is a huddle that's designed to avoid playing. When I talk about the huddle tonight, I want to think about a huddle that's designed to prepare for the next play. The, the image is similar to the, the situation that we find the, uh, the disciples in in the verses that I want to look at this evening. My hope this evening is, is that this image is also somewhat where we find ourselves in alignment this evening as a church. Not only can we learn from these verses why we are in a huddle, we can also learn what we are to do because we are in our huddle. Why are we here? What are we to do tonight as we huddle together? What's our purpose? I trust that by this point you have your Bibles open to our verses, so let's read verse 19 of John chapter 20. So, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. From these verses, I want to recognize a couple different things about huddles. First, our fear places us into our huddle. <coughs> our fear places us into our huddle. The, the reason a, a team goes into a huddle in, in sports is that there's a fear that they might not all work together as an effective team if they do not all understand what is expected when, when the play begins. Well, it's fear of a different sort that, that caused the disciples to group together in the verses I just read. Still, it's fear nonetheless. When we catch up with the disciples here in verse 19, it's Sunday evening of the resurrection day. Technically, 
It's probably sun, or it's probably Monday by a Jewish count because it's after sundown. And from a Jewish perspective, that was the start of the day. And but John is is writing for a global audience, so he's not using the Jewish frame of, of date reckoning. And frankly, even the Jews often attach their evening meal mentally to the 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 day that they'd just gone through. It seems logical that we're eating at the end of of a busyness. So they're at the end of that that busy Sunday. As I've mentioned already, Peter and John, they've they've seen the empty tomb. By this point in the day, Mary has come breathlessly from the tomb and told the disciples that she saw Jesus in person, risen from the dead. We we can also anticipate from Luke's account that, that Al read this morning that it's quite likely that the two disciples that Jesus met on the road to Emmaus, they have probably returned back to the disciples at this time and, and just finished maybe even telling the group that they saw Jesus. At any rate, by the time we come to verse 19, there have been several indications that Jesus is alive rather than dead. Several different indications have have gathered together and piled up that Jesus is alive. And yet, how do we find the disciples in verse 19? They're huddled in this room with the doors shut. In fact, the the word that they use for shut most likely indicates that the doors were locked. They're behind locked doors. Verse 19 also says that the reason they're in this room is because of fear of the Jews. So the picture that we have here is that of a group of of men huddled together with each other, trying to remain isolated from the outside world. As much as they knew how to isolate themselves, they were doing that. As we think about their posture for a moment, I want to stop and ask ourselves, what can we learn from these men? Our learning... As we think about them, it should begin with recognizing the source of our fear. The source. I'm convinced that that whether we're willing to stop and admit it or not, we're we're all impacted to some degree at times by fear. Our our fear, furthermore, is similar to the fear of these men. We, We fear those who might be hostile to us because we know that they are hostile to our Lord. We fear those who hate Jesus. We fear the treatment that we might receive from unbelievers. We fear their hatred. That's precisely what drove these men to to hide in this room and lock the doors. They feared the Jews. It was only three days ago that they saw the Jewish leaders come in force to the, the Garden of Gethsemane and take Jesus away. Most of them were scattered immediately. But, but they all knew that, that Jesus had been nailed to the cross. They, they all knew that he had died as a result of this extreme hatred that, that the leaders had. They also knew that they had personally been seen with Jesus publicly many times over the past three years. They had traveled with Jesus. They were his known associates. They really had good reason to think their lives were in danger, didn't they? Now come these reports all day, these reports that Jesus is no longer in the tomb. You know, whether they dare to hope that he's actually alive or not, 
they can surely anticipate that the Jewish leaders are going to be mad. Very, very mad. Will the leaders turn their attention to the associates of Jesus to try to make the point that they remain in control? Will the disciples be the next to suffer the the outburst of their anger, the the same anger that, that hung Jesus on that cross? If we think about it for a moment, we can understand why the disciples were hiding behind this locked door. They were afraid. We can even agree they they had good reason to be afraid. It was logical. They were afraid of what others might do to them. Still, the more we think about it, the more I I would hope we recognize the reason that we can understand their fear so well is, is that we suffer from the same fear. It's not foreign to us. We understand being afraid of what others will do to us. Now, now granted, I I don't think we have to fear this evening that the leaders of our country are going to to march in our door tonight and arrest us and put us to death. Although we probably also recognize the possibility to arrest is is increasing. We've seen it happen in Canada in the past couple years when they arrested pastors who simply were insisting that they needed to gather their churches together to, to worship and preach the gospel. The threat of arrest in our country is not as remote as it was. Our our country is clearly becoming more and more hostile to us as Christians. The the hatred of our faith is increasingly becoming an open hatred. So, So we can understand their fear. As of tonight, though, we, we really do not have reason to fear for our lives. We, we do not expect police or, or other leaders to, to storm this building and, and arrest us and then sentence us to, to death. Yet we are often still afraid. We're, we're afraid that, that we might be ridiculed by the unbelieving world. We might be mocked for our belief. We're afraid that we might be marginalized because we've seen all that happen many times already. And as the hostility grows, it becomes more and more of a, a factor that, that could happen to us. The probability increases. So how do we, we respond to the fear that, that we might be mocked, that we might be ridiculed? Well, one way we respond sometimes is to retreat into our isolated group of Christians. To, to work really hard to keep busy doing Christian activities. We, we take on more and more ministries and we move around within the, the context of the, the, the church ministries. Figuratively, what we're doing is locking our doors to the outside world. We're, we're avoiding placing ourselves in positions where our association with Jesus Christ could become the, the, the focus of attention. Essentially, we huddle up. We huddle up out of fear. The, the source of our fear is real. The, the perceived fear of what the unbelieving world might do to us, it's real. And that fear places us into a huddle. Looking at the disciples, we, we can identify our source of fear because it's so similar to what we see in them. At the same time, as we look at the disciples in, in these verses, we can also discover the solution to our fear. The solution. As I mentioned, the, the reason for the locked doors was fear. That was the reason, at the, but the function 
the, the function of these locked doors in John's gospel serves to turn our attention in an entirely different direction. John gives us the reason they're hiding behind the doors, but he gives us this information so that it has a different function. In John's record of this night, the, the function of the locked doors is to highlight the amazing, miraculous appearance of Jesus. The, the group was securely, or at least that's what they thought, they were securely huddled behind locked doors when suddenly Jesus came and, and stood in their midst. Now, I don't know if Jesus suddenly materialized in the middle of the room. I don't know if he came through the doors somehow. I don't know if the door suddenly swung open and he walked in. What I do know is that something marvelous happened, something miraculous. Still, John's focus is not on the miracle. John's attention turns to what Jesus says immediately. Jesus says, peace be with you. Peace. That, that's that normal Hebrew greeting. Yet Jesus repeats it twice. John records it for us in verse 19 and again in verse 21. And that double repetition of that normal greeting, that indicates that Jesus is giving more than just, hey, how you doing, type greeting. I would guess, considering on how the majority of the disciples had responded to the events of Friday, they had abandoned Jesus, that that when Jesus suddenly appeared before them, most of them were probably troubled by his sudden appearance. There'd be guilt mixed in with their surprise. They ran away. They left their Lord and Savior and took off caring for their own lives, every man for himself. When Jesus is suddenly standing there, surely they would be ashamed to have Jesus suddenly looking at them. I'm sure this greeting would comfort those who had guilt. Peace be with you. Theologically, there, there's even more comfort involved in Jesus' greeting than just assaging some guilt. Peace be with you. Think for a moment about that phrase. That first word that Jesus gives, the, the first word he gives to his assembled disciples after his resurrection, peace. Why did Jesus die in the first place? He died because there was no peace between God and man. Sin had destroyed all the peace between us. There, there could not be peace because of sin. The, the, the peace between God and mankind was ruptured. It was now nothing but enmity between God and his creation. Ever since the Garden of Eden, every person has been seeking his own will, his own desires, rather than submitting to the authority of God. There is no peace. Every person has been rejecting the authority of God, trying to live independently as an autonomous creature. There is no peace. Yet Jesus came to pay the price that sin brought on men. He came and died so there could be peace. Real peace. Real peace. Reconciliation between God and men. Peace would now be possible. So when Jesus says, peace be with you, he's the one person who can give the, the very thing that word implies. Peace between God and man. The disciples suddenly hear Jesus offer this word of peace. They suddenly see Jesus is indeed resurrected, and they rejoice. 
Jesus shows his hands inside, shows them that it's indeed him. At the same time, surely the, the demonstration of his wounds would remind them of the price that that peace took. The, the price of the peace that he was proclaiming. Jesus had to die for their sins. They had already accepted him as Lord. They had been following him for several years. He was their Lord. He was their master. He was their authority. And they recognized that, that he was God. Their, their faith was in him, and, and he brought to, true peace to them. And now, this final assurance, there is nothing that the Jewish leaders can ever do that can take this away from them. Fear, remember, drives teams into a huddle. They're, they're concerned about what play might happen next. The, as soon as each person on the team knows what play is to be run, though, when they're sure of their responsibility, that, that fear of confusion abates. It's no longer there. Well, in a similar way, we have a solution to fear. Fear comes because we're concerned about this hostile world around us. Fear comes because we don't know how our future might unfold as our future intersects with the hostilities of the people around us. These are things that we cannot change. We, we can never eliminate fear by, by changing our circumstances so much so that there's nothing to fear. Fear, by definition, is driven by things that are outside our control. Still, we, we have a solution to fear. Fear is eliminated when we come to a full realization of, of what is coming next. We are living in peace with God. We are living in peace with God. We have peace. The absolute worst thing that could ever happen is so much less than what's already been accomplished by our Savior. When we have peace, why should we care if someone mocks us? We have peace with God. If someone were to threaten our lives, is that a cause for fear? We'll be spending eternity with our Lord and Savior. We have peace with God. No, no matter what you might put in the blank, if blank should happen, do I have a reason to fear? The answer is always the same. Not when I have peace with God through Jesus. The, the peace that, that Jesus provides, that was the solution to the disciples' fear and it's the solution to our fear as well. We have peace with God. Our fear places us into our huddle. We, we isolate ourselves within the perceived safety of our Christian circles. The source of our fear is this concern over what unbelievers might do to us. The solution to our fear is peace with Jesus. Still, having our, our fear removed, that, that's only the, the first thing that, that we must see about huddles. Huddles are designed to make sure that the fear is removed. We come together to understand our peace with God, but we must not only understand that fear that placed us into our huddle and the solution to our fear, we need to go beyond that and recognize, secondly, that our mission breaks us out of our huddle. Our mission breaks us out of our huddle. In verse 21, Jesus immediately turns the attention of the disciples to the mission that he's leaving them to accomplish. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. 
Let, let me give you a, a dynamic equivalent type translation here of Jesus' words. Guys, you have a job to do. Go do it. That's what he's telling them. Get on with it. Go do it. Now, we need to be a, a bit careful here. We need to understand that, that the mission Jesus gave the disciples, and, and the, by extension us, the mission that, that's been, become ours, is not the exact same mission as the one that Jesus had received from God the Father. It's not the same mission. When, when Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I also sent you, he's not saying we have the same mission. The similarity that Jesus is drawing is in the sentness. We have the same sentness. We are sent ones. It's not in the mission. Jesus' mission was to come and die as a voluntary substitute for the sins of men and women. We do not have that mission. Thank God we don't because we couldn't do it. He had to die for our sins. We can't die for others. Furthermore, Jesus has clearly completed the task. He died and he rose again. The, the mission that he gave us is to carry the information of his mission to sinful men and women who need to know it. The, the connection that, that Jesus is making in verse 21 is that the Father sent Jesus, sent him, in a, and now Jesus in a similar manner is sending us. In fact, the, the reason Jesus can send his disciples is because his mission is finished. He did what the Father gave him to do. Now he can send us to carry it forward, to carry on the communication of his victory, his completion. Our mission, the the current day disciples of Jesus, is the continuing mission that he gave his disciples. It's not the mission that Jesus had. And, And I belabor this detail because there's been a lot of confusion in the last couple of decades in evangelicalism around this point. Our mission is related to Jesus' mission, but it's not the same mission. Uh, According to Acts 28, the the mission that the disciples were given, it goes to the end of the age, and and we're part of the continuation of the disciples' mission. Proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, the victory that he has, the peace that he offers. As I said, I don't belabor this point simply for a theological precision. The the sad fact is that this confusion over this distinction between Jesus' mission and our mission has resulted in in many local churches becoming distracted from their real mission. Rather than proclaiming the the glorious cross work of Christ, churches have gotten them tied up in all kinds of social matters. Churches have tried to care for the needy, supposedly like Jesus did, because he cared for the needy. Churches have tried to heal the sick, supposedly like Jesus did. Churches have tried to address racial issues and so forth. None of these things are unimportant. In fact, these things are vitally important. Every one of these issues serves as evidence that that our world is broken by sin. We should be very concerned because these issues and every other issue like it we could list demonstrate the great need for the mission that we have been given. We have a glorious, marvelous mission. A mission that that we cannot allow ourselves to be distracted on because it deals with a greater problem than any of these other issues that distract. It's the sin issue between God and men. 
that is the fundamental issue that we now have a mission to address. The nature of our mission means that our, our mission is not within our huddle. We, we cannot accomplish our mission if we remain huddled up. Our, our mission is not within these four walls. It is not within this group of believers. Our mission requires that, that we break out of our huddle so that we can execute what we've been called on to do. I want us to see two things from our text that, that will encourage us to take this necessary step to, to break out of our huddle so that we can accomplish our mission. First, let's ensure that we recognize that the power for our mission, that the power, that the power for our mission is not our own. It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus reminds the disciples and, and most likely demonstrating to the disciples that, that the source of power will always be the Holy Spirit. Remember, on, on the final night before Jesus went to the cross, from the disciples' frame of reference, that's only a couple nights earlier now, Jesus had promised them to, that, that he would send the Holy Spirit. In Luke's account of, of this meeting on Sunday night, that, that, again, we read just this morning, we're, we're told that as Jesus spoke, he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. That's one of the primary functions of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit opens our minds, he illumines our minds so that we can comprehend the significance of scripture. The Holy Spirit had already done that for the disciples before. He, he'd allowed them to understand that Jesus was the Messiah. Peter spoke on their behalf when they asked, when Jesus asked him, who do men say that I am? And he answered, they say this and that. And he says, well, who do you say? You're the Christ. The Holy Spirit had opened their minds. Now the Holy Spirit was teaching them the implications of their, their mission as Jesus once again reviewed it with them. This is so important for us to understand. The power for our mission comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit applies the truth of what Jesus says to people's lives. We can never be smart enough, fluent enough, smooth enough to convince anyone that they need a Savior. We'll never have the right words. There is no argument strong enough to break the heart of stone. We cannot do it. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. The Holy Spirit is the power for the mission. He alone can replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He alone brings regeneration. He brings spiritual life into the spiritually dead. The Holy Spirit alone brings conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit alone brings transformation of lives. Only the Holy Spirit can do that, but the Holy Spirit always does that through the words of the living word. The message that Jesus has given his disciples to carry. Only the Holy Spirit can, can do it, but he uses our words. The mission that we've been given to share that Christ alone brings peace. We need to remember the power for our mission, the Holy Spirit. We also need to remember the purpose for our mission. The purpose of the mission that, that Jesus gave the disciples is stated in his own words in verse 23. The mission of forgiveness of sins. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. 
The, the purpose of the mission is the forgiveness of sins. The, the mission centers on the very thing that separated the creature from the creator. It, it centers on the very thing, the very same thing that caused the glorious Son of God, the eternal, divine, infinite, all-wise, all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful, second person of the triune Godhead to enter creation, to give his life on the hideous cross. Our mission centers on that, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I'll admit verse 23 is a bit hard to understand. A a quick reading makes it look like the apostles have the authority to decide who will have their sins forgiven and who will not. In, In fact, I'll just say on the side, this verse is partly used by the Roman Catholic Church to argue that the church has received this authority from Peter to be the the mechanism for the forgiveness of sins. Reading this verse in in that manner, though, it it flies in the face of of the rest of of the clear teaching of Scripture. In fact, not even Peter, who, who was in this room at this moment, listening to Jesus give this word, not even Peter takes... Jesus' command as if he has been given the authority to determine who will have their sins forgiven. Turn with me to Acts 10, verse 43, and see what Peter says about the forgiveness of sins. Acts 10, 43, Peter says, Of him, referring to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Peter clearly understands that forgiveness of sins comes through faith in Jesus alone. Peter never assumes that he has the authority to forgive anyone's sins. Anyone's sins. He doesn't have that power. So certainly he could not pass that power on then to a church. Peter understands that forgiveness comes through faith, through believing in Jesus. So if we turn back to our text this evening, let's see if we can make sense out of what Jesus is saying in verse 23. Since he's not saying that the disciples will have the ability to determine grace receives forgiveness and Cheryl doesn't. That's not what they're saying. One thing to notice is, as we look at the words is that Jesus refers to what happens in heaven in a passive tense. Have been forgiven. Have been retained. That's a passive tense. That, that means the disciples are proclaiming something that will already be a fact in heaven. It's already occurred. It's, a, it's happened there. By the time they make their proclamation on earth, this has already been determined in heaven. And that's the key. The disciples are proclaiming. They're not determining God in heaven has determined who are forgiven. They are on earth proclaiming what God has determined. Think about it for a moment. That is what the gospel message boils down to. The gospel message is the proclamation of what God in heaven has already determined, of what God has said. The only way for sins to be forgiven is through faith in Jesus Christ. Every time a person is challenged with the gospel message, that that person is placed in a position of determining whether his or her sins have been forgiven or not. If the person accepts that Jesus is the only one who can and, and who did pay the penalty their sins deserve, then that person is determining that he or she 
is indeed forgiven. They have believed. Their, their acceptance shows that they have believed. By contrast, rejection of the offer of salvation demonstrates that their sins have not been forgiven. The one who does the forgiving is the divine one. The, the one who is involved in the mission on the cross. The one who is sending the human agents out to proclaim. That's the one who does the forgiving. The, the human agent is simply an agent of proclamation. There's one more thing that I want to draw your attention to in this verse. One, one thing that this verse makes very clear is that the disciples' mission involves dealing with individual souls. Twice in verse 23, Jesus says, of any, that the sins of any. Those two little words, of any, they, they point to singular individuals. He's not talking about a group. He's talking about individual people. This is a very personal mission. The, the disciples are responsible for proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ, but that proclamation is to individuals. The mission is not to make a, a general proclamation to the world at large. There is place for that, but ultimately it needs to come down to be directed to individual believers. You have to believe, and you have to believe, and you Singular, individual, have to believe in the gospel message. I don't know how to apply this any more directly than, than Jesus has already done. We, we follow in the footsteps of the disciples. Their commission is our commission. The, the purpose of their mission is the purpose of our mission. It's the forgiveness of sins. We are responsible for bringing to people the message of Jesus Christ. We are responsible for bringing people to the place where they will determine whether their sins are forgiven or not by whether they accept or reject the message of the cross. I look at it this way. Every sporting huddle that I've ever seen breaks up. As soon as the team members understand the plan for the play, they know what's going to happen. They, they, they know what they are to, to do. The huddle breaks. When, when they know what their personal assignments are, they go to execute. They, typically, they put their hands together and they, they yell something like, let's go team! Some, something like that. As you get older, they maybe don't quite do that in the professional level, but, but some sort of, let's go or break! What well, we need to do Likewise. It's time to call, let's go team. It's time to break out of our huddle and execute our mission. We must break out of our huddle and execute the mission that God has given us. That's the one idea I want to take away tonight. We gather together so that we understand what we are to do next. We huddle up for the purpose of understanding our mission. But once we do, it's time to break out of our huddle and execute Execute our mission. In Acts 4.12, Peter proclaims, There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. We are to proclaim Jesus. We are to proclaim that in Jesus, and Jesus alone is the forgiveness of sins. We cannot do that if we remain huddled up in our church group. We, we must proclaim this truth to people, individual people who need to hear it. 
Those people are not sitting here tonight. They're out there where we're about to go tomorrow when we break out of our huddle and go. It is time to break out of our huddle and execute our mission. I don't care what kind of team it is. Football team, basketball team, soccer team. None of them remain in their huddle. After the quarterback in football has passed along the play, the, the 11 men who were huddled up, they, they break up and they go to the line of scrimmage and then they give everything they have to move that ball forward. They focus on nothing else than what is required to achieve the momentary victory of a football game. It's time to break out of our huddle and execute our mission. Are we straining? Are we giving everything that we have to the mission that we have been handed? Are we still trapped in our huddle? Our fear places us into a huddle. We, we surround ourselves with the, the comforts and the perceived security of our Christian circles. The, the source of our fear is the possible actions of unbelievers around us. The solution to our fear is the peace of Jesus. The peace of Jesus. Focusing on the eternal salvation that he purchased for us on the cross. Our mission breaks us out of our huddle. We've been given the mission of proclaiming the one and the only one who can provide salvation to anyone who believes. Our mission places our focus on unbelievers around us rather on what they might do. We look at them as individuals. Jesus has given us the power for the mission through the person of the Holy Spirit. He's given us the purpose for our mission through the countless individuals that he has placed in our lives. People who need to hear about him. It's time to break out of our huddle and execute our mission. It's time to execute, giving everything that we have to achieve what God has called us to achieve, focusing on nothing else. It's time to break out of our huddle and execute our mission. Let's pray. Father, I ask tonight that you would encourage us and embolden us to do this, to execute the mission that you've given to us, to do it with all of our energy, with all of our passion, because we love our Savior because we rejoice in what we've received, the peace that he has given us. Our sins have been forgiven. We are reconciled to you through his blood. And we are here to tell others that they can have the same. Father, use us for that purpose this week. Make us bold. Make us focused. Make us energized. May we play well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.